1: Foundation Arvind Gupta. The reason
2: that people are talking about India is massive digitization
1: and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, global head of investment tree. My co-host, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors, Lee Chen Ren, the director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree. Also joining us on the program today is Kevin Flanagan, who is the head of Fixed Income Strategy at Wisdom Tree. Please note, Kevin and I are registered representatives of Foreside Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor at Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the office of investment products and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. We've got a very special guest for, for the hour with us today, Ellen Zetner, who is the chief U.S. economist for Morgan Stanley. Kevin worked with her for quite a long time uh, at Morgan Stanley. uh, And Ellen's team just published their mid-year outlook. So we're gonna be digging into what Ellen and her team sees for the second half of the year. Uh, But to start us off, Professor, get some of your comments. We had a pretty good week in the markets. The economy is starting to open. How are you seeing things?
2: Yeah, I mean, we ran a little ahead of ourselves with over-enthusiasm with the Two weeks ago with that employment report and then we had uh you know the bump uh, last thursday and then uh almost a 10 percent sell-up but it righted itself and we've you know regained most most of it um i think that we're i think we're going towards more of a more much more modest increase from this point a range perhaps um uh liquidity is still flowing into the market. M one, which uh we noted last week paused, uh it actually sank a little bit, um uh actually uh surged to a new all-time high. I mean this is this is it's it's really quite dramatic um in terms of twenty six percent increase in three months. Uh M two continues to new highs. So liquidity is still being added, not quite the rate as before, but still enough to support the market. Um, there is a concern about uh, uh, new infections in some states. Florida just reported a, a, a pretty big increase. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not ready to call, first of all, a second wave. They really never had a first wave. And their caseload is still well below uh, what peaked out uh, on a per capita basis in uh, New York, uh, Massachusetts, or even New Jersey which had the and connecticut which those four states had the highest um, number of cases per capita and none of those other states are even near that level i'm not saying for sure they won't um, get to that level uh, i tend to doubt it but uh... i think we'll learn a lot in a week to see whether that settles down or not um, on the virus front um, of course, we, we got that good word about uh, dexamethasone, um, a very common anti steroid, which uh, cuts the deaths uh, uh, dramatically for those that are on ventilators. When we should note, and we have noted every single week, that the number of deaths um, for, uh, per hospitalization. Um, has been falling quite dramatically over the three months that uh, the uh, epidemic has rained uh, in the United States. We've really cut it by a half in terms of just techniques that we've learned how to uh, administer, uh, and dexamethasone is a, just another bump of, of treatment that is lowering um, the death rate uh, on that. Um, again, tri- trials are you know, on many vaccines are still proceeding. Um, we're not very soon. We should hear on a few of them um, into July. Um, I mean, preliminary news is good. There are a lot of them. We don't need everyone to, to hit. I imagine there's going to be quite a few, but that's going to be really obviously important uh, news. It's more important to me, as I've said from day one, to look at the virus news and uh, um, treatments and, and cases, uh, rather than to look at backward-looking um, economic data. The only economic data that I find extraordinarily useful, of course, is that monetary data, because that shows the amount of liquidity that's been provided and stimulus that's been provided uh, into the economy.
1: Um, so when, when you said range-bound market, uh, is it the the range-bound back to the highs of the the U.S. Yeah. and I, I, I would we'll get...
3: say,
2: I mean, we could be on a slight tilt up, but I, I mean that big forty-four percent gain. I think for for the next three four months, I would say. I mean, there's there, there there are a lot of uncertainties. First of all, one, and this should resolve sooner, the uncertainty about whether. This a uh, second increase in infections that we see in Florida, Texas, Arizona. Is this going to flare up to something as bad as as New York? Uh, my feeling is no. Um, but we that's 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 number one. Uh, number two, of course, we've talked about the political risks um, of a Democratic sweep into the Senate and a reversal of the tax cuts. Um, I mean that that is that's another risk that the market has to deal with and then one has to deal with the fact that even if uh these uh, new cases in um, uh the south do not uh spike much higher uh, there's still a risk of a fall early winter spike in cases that just has to do with the seasonality of the coronavirus uh, which is going to be coming at the same time as the election. So no, there are these uncertainties. Uh, the more the Fed, uh, you know, and the money supply continues to rise, the more I think the market will go up, and I'll be looking at that. There's $1.5 trillion that the Treasury, um, has on deposit at the Fed that is scheduled to be spent over the next two or three months. That would also surge the money supply further. That will also help to support equities. So uh, I'm not saying anything about a big decline, although we, you know, we're going to get declines. We're going to get certainly ups and downs as we do in equity markets. But I'm I'm saying that uh, I see us getting back near those February highs as we really are now. Nasdaq actually above, but uh, the S and P, but but being more range bound for the next uh, three to five months.
1: Let me bring in Li Chen for some quick comments. I think uh, one of the issues I know we've talked about is another one of the risks is the tension with China. China's you know was early in the virus, and, Be- and Beijing's had to lock down Li Chen a little bit. Any comments on what you're seeing both in China and just general trends in the virus?
4: Hi, yes. Um, actually, I, I first I, I agree with Professor um, on. I don't believe the um, Florida and Arizona is um, going to significantly run up. I think in the news media. My favorite statistics is the hospitalization, you know, usage. And if you go to like Arizona's website, you can see that they, you know, people have been reporting like eighty percent ICU usage. But people didn't realize that you know their usage was about seventy percent in March and April. So from seventy percent to eighty-five percent, it's not that huge a jump. And if you look at the uh, ventilator usage, they they have. Like only forty percent capacity usage, so there's a even if there's a run-up, the hospitals have. As you see Arizona from from their dashboard, you can see that they have still pretty good uh, capacity. Florida, a little bit. Um, they, they don't have. They don't disclose the hospitalization. Uh, I wish they you know they do because I I really think this is a key metric when we look at the virus in the next um, uh, half of the year because you know. Um, the number of cases is it, it's not really the best indicator because it's it's so dependent on testing. And then related in, in the China situation as well. Um first I, I, I don't believe it it will be a, a significant flare-up because in Beijing um they're testing like seven hundred thousand people uh you know in the last week. So And then out of all these tests, you have about, you know, 200 cases. Um, Half of those cases are, in some some cases, like more than half, um, is low symptom or no symptom. So I think the number of cases uh, um, sometimes can be very skewing when people think about uh, this virus. And of course, you know, in the end... We don't we want people to get healthy, but we really need to rely on people, like you know, personal responsibility, uh, to 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 take you know. Instead of I don't see any potential lockdown, you know, will be needed. Now in China the situation is a little bit, you know, sensitive because Beijing is you know the center and political. There are lots of reasons there, you know, for for a little bit more stricter uh, lockdown. But I I don't believe that will be uh, a significant issue
2: yeah I want to agree with Lika on on, on, on all those things but one should also remember that um, there, there's a lot of precautionary hospitalizations um, that are that are taking place as, as if Florida does have an elderly population they're the ones at risk um, uh, if there's any problem if the person has any pre-existing conditions they're going to put you in the hospital even if you get, if you're not because they need to be able to provide oxygen on an emergency basis if you need it and uh, you know so in a way is if you've got the capacity um uh and the insurers are going to pay for it uh they're going to put you they're going to put you in um and uh uh, as I said, well, you know very fortunately, we've learned how to treat even elderly people uh, much better in terms of of getting them um, not onto the ventilator but giving them enough oxygen and having the ventilator as a standby um, treatment and now, of course, with the uh, uh, dexamethasone uh, with other drugs um, that there and and other drugs will will come as as uh, as treatments so uh, yeah, I agree. I agree with everything, and I do actually agree with you that I, 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 it seemed to get blown out. Of, of, I mean, I, I, maybe Li Qian can tell me. It seems like China is almost paranoid about <laughs> any cases. They, they just want to totally step in and squelch them immediately. Um,
4: yeah, I think. Uh, of, I mean, it's almost that, like a yeah, panic. We, we, I, we,
2: you know, that that you know, President Xi built his reputation on squelching. Uh, Wuhan quickly, I think, you know, the, let's, let's continue to that same scenario, which only China, you know, China as a authoritarian country can can do whatever it wants.
4: And I think uh, maybe one day, you know, we'll have a longer conversation. My, I myself, you know, lived half of my life in China and, and half years here now. And I had started to understand a little bit more in the sense that I think a different uh, places, you know, the the government's role is very different in China. And that's, you know, somewhat reflected on some of the, you know, ex-state-owned strategies we research on. Um, in China, you know, government's role is a huge part of your life. So that puts government as part of the obligation as well. So you know, if anything goes wrong, the government is indeed, you know, Going to have to be blamed with with all the media going on so even in my hometown you know the every day uh the uh every neighborhood have have a government official who, who who is assigned to make sure everybody follows social distancing so it's just completely different um i would say a different way of life you know versus here and you know for this virus you just have to you know every country Found their own way to deal with uh, these kind of things, and in China, you, if you're standing here, it seems you know so hard to understand. You know why testing you know hundred thousand thousand people. You know with with a, a, a smaller market, but that's just you know a different the, the way it is, it is. The expectation of the government is also different, and also you know how the government's uh, officials. Personally, they are being held accountable, which um, you know makes them like. From if you see from here, it feels very extreme. Some of the measures.
1: Well, we're going to keep coming back to China. I mean, that's going to be one of the key issues—not just with the virus, but how the policy issues interact for the remainder of the year. I'm sure we're going to be talking about that again. Uh, Li Chen, Professor Siegel, thank you so much for joining us to give us some commentary to start us off.
2: Thank you very much
1: talk to you again next week let me bring in our special guest uh, and as well as kevin flanagan head of fixed income strategy at wisdom tree we have ellen zettner who's a managing director and chief u.s economist for morgan stanley ellen thank you for joining us on behind the markets
0: yeah you bet nice to be on with you guys uh
1: maybe you could give us a little bit so you just re- released your second half outlook how do you see the world what's your sense of where we are in the reopening of the economy and how that's going to develop
0: yeah. So, uh, you know, we've got um a really good spate of data coming through now. And, you know, it's for structural reasons. We shut down the economy. Um And so, you know, whether it's a shutdown of the economy or just a cyclical downturn, what kicks off recoveries is pent-up demand coming through. And pent-up demand, as you can imagine, would be even more uh, pronounced in this case, uh, given that that activity just was not allowed to go on for a time. So, uh, motor vehicle sales is, is a great example of, of pent up demand uh, coming through, but we, you know, we saw this in um, the retail sales report, uh, where after a record drop, uh, you have a, a record, you know, double digit increase. Um, and so this is all to be expected. Um, and we should continue to get a flow of good data as, you know, we're still getting data on the month of May. We know through the month of May, states were moving through more phases of their opening. That continued in June. I sit in, in New York where uh, in New York City, where we only just started our phase one uh, last week. Uh, and so um, that data should continue to come in positively as we're opening up. So that's, I'm sure uh, Siegel would tell you, driving a lot of the market sentiment, because markets extrapolate that out and say, okay, yeah, you economists, who are always the dismal scientists, are telling us that, okay, we brought millions of people back to work in May, but we're still 20 million jobs below the previous level. Retail sales jumped, but we're still more than 40 billion uh, uh, lower than the previous level. I hear all that, but we're looking forward and markets are extrapolating and saying, yeah, but this shows we're climbing out of the hole. Um, And so that's where we are right now with the data as it's unfolding. Um, what I'm more concerned about, and why you know I always try to, to temper elation over over data when it's coming through for uh, on the good side for, for structural reasons, is what happens. So these would be some of my burning questions, you know, or concerns. So what happens um, six months from now? When government support is running out and the unemployment rate is still high, and we start to get a handle on, a better handle on, how many jobs have been permanently lost, because we will have permanent job loss uh, uh, out of this, but we don't know how much that is. Um, How much will these job gains driven by businesses being able to open up uh, be tied to the uh, Paycheck Protection Program, which were the loans that small businesses were able to take out in order to open, you know, once? Um, they have brought payrolls back in order to have qualified for those loans to turn into grants, you know, at some point they will need to then take an organic look at the size of their labor um, in relation to underlying demand and decide that they still need all of those people on the payrolls. So there could be, you know, waves that recur of unemployment, you know, later on down the line. So I don't think we're out of the woods, but what we are doing is, is we're climbing out of the hole And uh, and part of what will help that is we are expecting further uh, fiscal stimulus
3: as well.
1: Kevin, would you want to get in 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 here with uh, as you think about what's what what you see where where you want to take Alan in the conversation?
3: Yeah, absolutely, Alan. Great to talk to you again. It's been a while. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you. you I was going through your growing into the new normal, your mid-year outlook piece, and you, you you kind of just touched on it that you know the. Input that we should see from personal consumption, obviously something different this time around from the financial crisis, was instead of money going say into banks, a lot of this fiscal stimulus seems to be going more into household pocketbooks and and you mentioned what happens when that runs out. so I was looking at the nice nice bar chart that you have on there, the outlook in a nutshell and um, where, where do you see consumption going as we move into 2021? Do you expect it to fade and then come back again? Is that like your overall base case?
0: Yeah, so I think there's, there's some patterns for consumption here um, that I think are going to be really um, interesting in, in this recovery. So one is how households deal in general with their confidence levels to resume more normal activities to the extent that governments uh, allow them to. Um, and, um, and then how, do, how will spending shift uh, based on certain post-COVID themes? Um, and then also the absence of, of household deleveraging cycle, which we had up to 2008. So in, in terms of these key pieces, um, the confidence, uh, let's start with the confidence level of it. So we have an AlphaWise team at Morgan Stanley that does a lot of large-scale surveys uh, survey work for us. One thing that was very encouraging to me early in, in the process of putting this outlook together is that our survey of thousands of households across the U.S. Um, suggested that about 60% of them said, I don't need to see a vaccine in order to resume um, more normal activity. Um, and, uh, and so, I, you know, we can set aside what the epidemiologists would say about what that means if people are going to go out and not be careful don't think it necessarily means people will go out and not be careful. That's, that's going to be uh, up to them and up to uh, the, the various governors across the states. But just the fact that no one was answering, not no one, but few people were answering the survey saying, I'm never going to go to a movie theater again. Um, and so that was encouraging because you, you want to have um, the scars of, of COVID uh, to be um, less deep and not as long lasting as they, as they might be. Um, and so, um, you know, we're seeing this in, in the pent-up demand. People are going out. Um, you know, we have family in Florida that were amazed at how quickly people could not wait to get into restaurants to go out to eat again. Uh, you know, we we are a social animal, um, and animal spirits um, take over. And, and households are going to have to be willing to take on a certain level uh, of risk if they want to resume those more normal activities. So the pent-up demand is creating very outsized um, growth rates in consumer spending uh, right now. Uh, but, um, you know, let's say the pent-up demand continues through, I would say, into mid-July. Then we should start to settle into more, uh, quote-unquote, normal levels of, of what a pace of activity is going to, to look like. So at that point, the states will be um, fully open through all of their phases. But you're still going to have some lingering caution. So, you know, our assumption is that we don't quite get there in terms of the previous trend growth in consumer spending. Um, And that's one reason why it takes us eight quarters to the end of next year for consumer spending to reach the level that we were at pre-COVID. Now, to put it in perspective, um, that eight quarters compares to 14 quarters after the financial crisis. So this is a much faster recovery that we expect um, in consumer spending and in the overall economy compared with the financial crisis, and, and why is that? Well, it's primarily because households went into this downturn with incredibly healthy balance sheets, and I'm talking in the aggregate. Um, debt-to-income levels were at 20-year lows. You know, during the 10 years after the financial crisis, growth in debt uh, never quite outpaced growth in income for U.S. households. Um, and mortgage uh, uh, delinquencies going into this downturn were at record lows. Um, If I backtrack to 2008, we went into that downturn with debt-to-disposable income at 136%. Um, We were incredibly stretched, and uh, delinquency rates on mortgages were already skyrocketing. Uh, And so we spent five years deleveraging our balance sheet. Um, And for those five years, uh, households, if you're focused on deleveraging, you're devoting income to deleveraging, and that takes income away from other areas of spending. So that was really the contributor to the entire sluggish recovery after 2008. That's not the case today. Um, And today, the policy prescription has been much larger, I mean, dwarfing the response after 2008 and much more quickly. Uh, The forbearance programs, for instance, we're allowing folks to uh, delay mortgage payments for up to 12 months. That was put into place this time when delinquency rates on mortgages were at a record low. Um, in the financial crisis, we put those in place in 2010 after delinquency rates and foreclosures had reached record highs and millions of homeowners had already lost their homes. So um, that absence of a deleveraging cycle this time around, I think, is a, is a primary driver of why the consumer can get back to pre-COVID levels in terms of uh, the level of spending by the by the end of next, uh, year. Um, and then finally, I'll just add the other, the other theme that I think is really big for the consumer here is when we think about what life after COVID might be like, um, we like to explore, um, what shifts in spending patterns there may be. And I think one interesting thing here is that, you know, many of us are working from home. Um, and this also came from our AlphaWise survey that 50% of the respondents said that to some degree, they had some work-from-home arrangements, um, and that compares to about 15% pre-COVID based on BLS estimates. Uh, and so if we assume that work-from-home doesn't stay as elevated as today, because many of us will eventually be going back into the office, um, uh, and, and even though we're going back into the office, many of us may spend more days working at home or feel more free to work from home in the future, um, it's going to remain elevated. And when we work from home, we spend uh, our spending patterns resemble more closely to those when we're in retirement. Especially if I strip out, say, healthcare, which is age-related, um, and so that's interesting because it means that we can anticipate, you know, where some of the shifts in spending will be. So those are some of the themes that I, that I think you know we are thinking about. Now um, at Morgan Stanley, and I, I just think it's it's going to be the meat that
3: really great research
0: is is uh, made of um, for years to come as we try to continue to digest these longer term effects uh, from COVID.
3: Well, well, I know the Flanagan family is trying to do their best for consumption because I'm seeing a FedEx truck pulling down my driveway uh, as we speak. So um, the other thing I wanted <laughs> to ask because I know, Jar, you probably want to get in that that half-hour break just real quickly. I know things we've talked about in our asset allocation conversations at Wisdom Tree is real estate, and you kind of started touching on it a little bit with the stay-at-home. I mean, where do you think, not necessarily, say, residential real estate, what about commercial office space? What are you guys thinking about in in terms of where we go from here in this post-COVID world?
0: Yeah, well, I think – our CEO, James Gorman, was one of the first to come out and say that the reality of this is we'll need less office space. Uh, and, um, and I think that would be broadly the case for many companies. Uh, and so it, because we would have more work-from-home arrangements. So that has implications for CRE, commercial real estate. Um, there's going to be a tremendous overhang uh, that needs to be worked through on the back of this. Uh, you might see more re- reallocations of, of uh, the workforce outside of city centers. I mean, the, the, it takes crises like this to uncover, you know, where the gaps are in business continuity programs. Those BCP plans will need to be adjusted, uh, across companies. Um, you can't have all of your eggs or employees in one basket. Um, so there has to be more diversification there. Uh, and, um, and, and uh, you know, besides CRE, on the residential front as well, I mean, we always laugh on our team. We have, our one-person samples. So my one-man sample is the millennial on my team that is now considering moving out of the of New York City um, and moving outside of the city. Never thought you'd see a millennial, uh, a childless millennial moving outside of New York City. But th- these are the types of things that people are thinking about because of the, the risks uncovered by something like COVID.
1: One of the big topics we've been talking about on Behind the Markets, Professor Siegel has been discussing his view on the all the fiscal support that's coming into the system. How it differs from the financial crisis before. Uh, you know, all the quantitative easing by the Fed is not just um, sitting at excess reserves; it's actually getting out into the system. There, all you know, it's in people's checking accounts this time, with you know, the, the direct support from the government. How do you see he's been saying he thinks as we open the economy going into twenty twenty one and actually we do have a, a more normalized opening, the pent up demand you were talking about earlier, he sees inflation pressures. He thinks we're gonna get three, four, maybe five percent inflation over the next few years, not just like a one year thing. How how does your team look at inflation? Is he uh, overly aggressive there? What what is your team's look on inflation?
0: Well, uh, he's certainly aggressive compared with our expectation, but we have, um, uh, our, our global chief economist, Chetanaya, has put out, um, what, you know, at first was a pretty controversial view of why there would be longer term, higher structural, structurally higher inflation. I think more and more folks are getting on board with that, that view now. Whether it's three, four, five percent, I can't say because, of course, as an economist, I'm immediately going to pull in the fed into this um the fed would never allow inflation to rise that high uh and so you would be talking about uh very high rates uh of of interest from the fed uh because to fight inflation and and hold it hold it down so they wouldn't they simply wouldn't tolerate that level of inflation you'd have to take into account how restrictive higher interest rates would be on the economy um, but certainly, if the Fed were to sit back and do nothing and, and say, you know, let it run, then you could certainly get, get to those those rates of inflation. But, you know, I think the, the, um, uh, the uh, incredibly uh, high amount of fiscal and monetary policy stimulus and the aggressive response that we've seen there and the level of coordination that we've not seen since World War II is certainly a key piece of that thesis for structurally higher inflation in the future – but there will be other drivers, um, as well. Um, so one, just how quickly are we able to recover to, to those pre COVID levels? Um, studies have shown that the longer it takes, uh, in recoveries that, 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 uh, the economy is sluggish, the more permanent damage you can do, uh, to potential growth of, of the economy. And we certainly saw this after 2008. Now again, we expect a, a, a relatively quick uh, recovery compared with Uh, 2008. But there are other factors. Um, You know, the the trends over the past 30 years that have depressed inflation, we cannot assume that they will still depress inflation over the next 30 years. So think about the nature of this downturn. You know, fiscal policy activism is likely to be uh, a a part of the fabric of our institutional uh, response um, going forward. Uh, after this, there were um, inequalities that w- that was never addressed after the financial crisis that we need to address now. We've just uncovered how many people, more people than have ever gotten support before, need it in deep downturns like this. Um, I also think that policymakers are becoming more and more dissatisfied um, with the very low share that labor gets in profits and GDP in our economy uh and uh, and so you're going to see um uh you know uh, titans of, of industry um uh you know focus on them increased focus on them to do something about raising their labor share of profits um and uh and then think about deglobalization you know, it's a very slow moving uh trend um but a lot of these factors all point to higher inflation in the future than certainly what we've experienced over the last um, several decades.
3: Hey, Ellen, I just wanted to ask, you know, you, you brought the Fed in to the equation. You know, you and I have been doing this a long time, and we, we've seen, obviously, you know, a, a record where you do get policy mistakes from the Fed. And this time, around, you know, you mentioned letting it run hot. And, and you know, based upon, you know, you know Powell, his press conference after this the fed meeting his humphrey hawkins i'm dating myself uh... testimony this week you know it it appears the fed at this point right has no appetite that they're gonna make sure things are up and running and will probably be far more cautious and and probably very cognizant right of all the criticisms they got with their late cycle rate hike at the end of twenty eighteen so what do you think the chances are that they do make a policy mistake this time around and that you could actually see You know, inflation, not by their design, perhaps, or at least what they were trying to prevent, but maybe it does get to three or four percent.
0: Yeah. So, um, you know, it's uh, if it gets to three to four percent, I guess the point is it won't stay there for long because then the Fed would be scrambling to catch up and tighten financial conditions to slow the economy and put downward pressure on inflation. Um, I'm not sure at this point higher inflation, the Fed, would consider a policy mistake. They are so desperate to get inflation higher. Um, I mean, you know, they have a 2% symmetric goal. Symmetric means that they, they, you know, uh, if it's been undershooting for a time, they'll tolerate overshooting for a time around that 2% uh, goal. It's been undershooting for for a couple of decades um, on a consi- con- pretty consistent basis. Um, and some of that, you know, are the the technological forces that have been in place, uh, demographics, the aging of the population, which put, uh, has a gravitational pull on prices uh, as well based on demand shifts. Uh, and so, you know, those factors, again, are wrapped up in that whole thesis of, you know, what's not going to be depressing inflation as much in in the future. But I think, you know, the, the Fed is going to be very tolerant here uh, of rising inflation for a time because they have this um, – Uh, you know, what we think is moving toward a makeup strategy where you take into account if you've undershot your inflation goal for a time, then you're going to tolerate an overshoot for a time. But you can't make promises that you might have to break later on. So, you know, coming into the September meeting, we think is a good time when they wrap up the framework uh, review of how they conduct monetary policy. We think they're going to make some changes to that inflation framework, explicitly uh, tying it to economic outcomes in their summary of economic projections tables um, and saying that basically we're going to leave rates unchanged here um, for as long as it takes for inflation to overshoot for time as long as because you have to have that knockout clause um, as long as it's not projected to move above say two and a half percent over the over the medium term something similar to what we called the evans rule uh, back after the, the financial crisis where they had promised to leave rates unchanged until the unemployment rate came down below a certain threshold. Uh, and so because you can't make um, uh, uh, promises that you might have to go back and break. So you've got to have that knockout clause. So that's just what I mean by, you know, you could certainly um, – inflation dynamics uh, tend to be a, a, a slow-moving beast. And so um, – uh, or it's sort of hard to turn the ship once it's it's moving – so, once it, those inflation trends are solidly in place, the Fed will be playing catch up if it thinks inflation is then getting out of hand. And so it can move to higher levels for a time until those restrictive interest rates push the economy down and start to exert that, that gravitational pull. So, that's, that's what I mean. They're just not going to, there's no, there's no, uh, there is a limit to the tolerance. Let's put it that way.
3: Let me so I just, think, re- you know, Jared, I, that, I think that point is really. Pretty essential, you know when you 're having discussions about positioning and fixed income and where we could be going down the road, what we should be looking at um, I mean Alan, to your point, you know I, I agree one hundred percent that the fed's been undershooting for so long they they probably would love to overshoot for a little while, but are there implications for that then you know, say in treasuries, in the rate markets, you know should we be focusing you know on bringing in duration in fixed income portfolios in this environment? You know, looking as we've talked before about you know Treasury floating rate strategies per se, even though the Fed's not going to raise rates anytime soon. But you know, having some kind of rate protection angle within your portfolio, and oftentimes, you know, what I've always seen through the course of my my history here in, in the fixed income world is people usually start thinking about potential rate hedges. Not that we're you know it's lower for longer. You know, I I, I get that and things like that, but. You know, if you see a 10-year Treasury yield going from where we are now, and if you just look at a 50% retracement back to one and a quarter or things like that, it's going to leave a mark, right? There's going to be what, when I I was at Morgan Stanley, um, we used to call statement risk. And unfortunately, oftentimes, uh, advisors, and by extension, their clients, it's probably more on the client side, they usually look for rate rate hedges when the move has already begun, you know, instead of thinking about things and being a little bit preemptive or proactive, so I, I think it's going to be an interesting part of the conversation. I did a um, one, an internal office hours webinar yesterday. Here's a shameless plug, right? Uh, and I asked the question amongst the audience, you know, where do you see the ten-year Treasury yield twelve months from now? And you know, it was: we are going to be over one percent? Are we going to be below a half a percent? Or right where we are? And, you know, 60% said right where we are. So people are not yet thinking about where we could go. And that's why I think this whole aspect of what the Fed perhaps overshooting is going to play more of a role, I think, as we go forward.
1: Let me just reintroduce yeah. our guests real quick, real quick here. We were talking – we have Kevin Flanagan, head of fixed income strategy at Wisdom Tree. Ellen Zetner, the chief economist at Morgan Stanley. Sorry, Ellen. We just had to make sure our listeners know who we're talking to here. Go ahead. Uh, you want to follow up on uh, – on Kevin's use on rates?
0: Yeah. Um, uh, thanks, Jeremy. So the, yeah, I think that, but, but unfortunately, Kevin, you know that's how it normally plays out, right? So I think I think we, we've seen our clients, at least on the institutional side, start to embrace, um, you know, the possibility of, uh, you know, higher, structurally higher inflation in the future. I just think that for investors broadly to embrace it, you've got to start seeing upside surprises on inflation, um, and we're getting a, 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 a muddy. So that means you have to wait till almost in real time uh, to adjust those expectations. Um, right now, we've got such a mixed uh, picture with with so many cross currents impacting inflation that it's hard to get anything better than a muddy picture of it into the going into the end of the year. And that's because you've got you know severe disruptions um, and the BLS that's trying to do its best to measure. Um, those disruptions. You know, how do you measure hotel prices when hotels are closed? Um, you know, how do you measure rent prices if people uh, are taking advantage of the offers and, and not paying their rent currently? Um, you're not going to say that rents were zero that that month. So. So the the you know as we've come uh, as we've opened up and pent up demand for motor vehicles is coming through, it's hitting very little supply because we also shut down factories during that time. So new and used vehicle prices are are through the roof, and that will come off um, as uh, uh, supplies come back online and that pent up demand is fading. But so there are a lot of cross country We're not even going to get a real clean picture of inflation over the the rest of the year. But in terms of your your comment on. Or they think the 10-year is going. Now, part of this um, is uh, by design uh, of the Fed in that very early on in recoveries, when you've got a significant hole that you need to climb out of uh, and an output gap that's growing, you, know, you need to give strong forward guidance uh, that you're not going anywhere and you're basically going to do everything that you can in your power to keep financial conditions easy. So that means, you know, I think the, the quote from a Fed chair that I absolutely love. My favorite quote ever was Chair Powell uh, in the um, at press conference after the uh, the last meeting where he said, we're not even thinking about thinking about raising rates. So that alongside their economic projections that, that their own dot plot uh, shows that they're not going to raise rates at this point, looking at their own forecast through 2022. Um, and then you've got, you know, um, uh, balance sheet actions, which they can take out duration at any moment and keep the 10-year yield depressed. Uh, and um, and so I think that, that provides a firm footing for um, interest rates being under control across the curve and keeping financial conditions easy. Now, that said, it doesn't mean that they won't tolerate a rise in the 10-year at all. The 10-year, uh, if the economy is strengthening, then the 10-year should be rising in line with the strengthening of the economy. It's really only when interest rates, long-term rates, if the Fed feels they're out of line with the underlying picture of the economy, that they would need to then do something more forceful in order to drive those interest rates down to keep financial conditions uh, uh, easy. So I know know,
3: you know your colleague, Matt Hornback. I've been following him as well for a long time, even after leaving Morgan Stanley. So they were looking for the 10-year... To be around 130 I believe in the second quarter. Um, so going back to what I said before at that polling question that, that I gave at the, the webinar yesterday, do you guys get any pushback on that at all? I mean, do, they, do any of your clients feel, nah, not 130, we're going to stay right where we are?
0: So second quarter, you mean second quarter of next year? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I just trying to be sure, as we're still in the second quarter now, and I know that's not his view. No, no,
3: not quarter. this quarter. No, yeah, so, twelve months from now.
0: We, yeah. So the pushback that we get is similar to, to to what I had laid out. Is you know, oh, the Fed would never let the ten year um, get that high. Well, you know, if, if you think about so the work that we do at Morgan Stanley, we we when we start a forecasting process, we start um, uh, more than a a month ahead of actually publishing. Uh, the new outlook, because it starts with the economists. We put together our global view of where we think the global economy is, is going in all the regional economies. And then we sit down with our strategists, and it always starts with the rate strategist, so Matt Hornbach's team. Um, and we work through our expectations for the Fed, the path of growth, um, and a lot of that feeds into how Hornbach is thinking about where interest rates will be. And so the shape of growth um, that we envision is that, um, yeah, I talked about the pent-up demand coming through right now. We do have uh, the savings rate coming down that also fuels that demand. Um, later in the year, and I know the, the guests earlier on the show talked a lot about uh, the path of COVID, um, we do assume a second wave of infections. We assume at most selective um, uh, return to restrictions, um, not something that really hits the economy um, in a, in a uh, certainly not in a way that we've just come through, but, um, but that you might have some return to consumer caution as the media is reporting a lot of rise in second wave at that time. Um, and then in the spring of next year with a vaccine, we have a notable inflection in growth as those households that were still cautious about the activities that comes off, also some of the high density services uh, area of the economy are allowed to resume again. Uh, and so you've got um, an inflection in growth, and so it's it's really around that time that the ten-year um, uh, is also rising to that that level or is that high in Hornbach's forecast. Um, and, it, and again, it goes back to what is a proper level for the ten-year that keeps financial conditions easy in light of a stronger fundamental backdrop. So stronger fundamental backdrop should come with higher interest rates and it won't tighten financial conditions because the economy is stronger. So the level of financial conditions needs to be commensurate with that. So basically the tenure will be higher, but it's no it's not tightening financial conditions because the economy is also stronger.
3: I mean, yeah, you know, right, you think about it, it's fascinating. Here I'm asking you a question. With a one point three percent ten year, right? You know, do you get any pushback yeah. with that and uh if you just go back to it to where we were just a few years ago that was the all-time low for the 10 You know, the other thing I just want to say from, you know, I'm going to be I'm going to be selfish here, Jerry, if you don't mind, you know, talking about things on the on the fixed income front. Um with uh, you know, credit and where credit is just here in the US, you know, sticking here in the US, you know, focusing on obviously what the Fed looking at their balance sheet, you know, this is something I'm sure you and I could talk about over a few white claws uh, on at a barbecue or something like that, you know, looking at their balance sheet yesterday, we actually had a decline in the fed 's balance sheet, and we really haven't seen um, them pick up any kind of significant momentum in buying um, credit, obviously you know coming from wisdom tree etf buying for corporates put a smile on our face um... you know and they're going to move into the individual side but you know we like credit and i believe you know from what i've read morgan stanley um... tends to be overweight on the credit side as well um, i was just curious what your thoughts were there in terms of you know downgrades default risks. is, uh, is this already priced in to the to the mechanism have we discounted that and going to continue to move forward or if we get that in default rates coming, you know, say later this year, could we see a reversion back, a spread widening? A- any thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, so I think the, you know, certainly our corporate credit strategists are believe that with all the programs that the Fed has put in place, um, regardless of the extensive usage of those those facilities yet. Um, that um, that all of the policy response to this will keep uh, the default cycle because we will have a default cycle, but it will keep the default cycle no deeper than a normal corporate credit default cycle, um, which is good news because of course if, if you just had some model that equated you know default rates to the um, uh, the punch to the punch in the face to the economy that that COVID gave us. Um, then it would have dictated a very severe de- default cycle. Um, I think the, the, um, uh, you know, we, the Fed has shown how sensitive it is to um, corporate credit, um, and we saw that on Monday as they announced more changes and updates to their um, uh, corporate credit uh, facility. Um, and here's why. So credit makes the world go round. And policymakers, economists broadly understand this. And when I when I talk about financial conditions, um, it are really um, uh, you know major factors that, that go into how we think about financial conditions for the economy. There's the the S and P 500. There's the trade weighted dollar. Um, there's the um, uh, energy prices. There's the ten year of the treasury. And then there's credit spread. And credit spreads by far has the biggest impact. It's the biggest impact to an economy with upfront uh, uh, implications and long tails. Uh, and so um, if you're thinking about, you know, the parts of financial conditions, what do you care most about? It is credit. And this is one reason why we saw the Fed pivot to the sidelines so quickly uh, when they started dropping rates. It's because credit spreads started to um, blowout, and they know that that can have serious implications for the outlook for the U.S. economy. So they needed to get in thinking about getting financial conditions to ease as quickly as possible um, uh, after they, they tightened up so sharply in March. Um, and of course, they focused uh, uh, across a whole host of, of facilities, but, but corporate credit is really where they needed to, the most gain. And just from the announcement of the facility. Um, uh, the shock and awe of the announcement got a good deal in spread um, tightening or spread narrowing. Um, and so um, – but they, the spreads overall um, were still at recessionary levels. Um, and so there was more for the Fed to do there. Um, and so some of the things they could do certainly was removing uh, the, the, the um, restrictions to accessing the facility, um, beefing up their purchases, uh you know and and um uh and those were recommendations that were coming from our corporate credit strategists. well on monday we saw the fed make those changes um and announce that it would start broad bond buying uh it's because if you've narrowed spreads as much as you can just for the announcement of the facility then you need to go above and beyond that if you want to get further spread narrowing from there uh and so it shows you that at least on the credit front they're going to continue to be very sensitive to what's going on with spreads there. And it's not just about getting them back to pre-COVID levels. Again, we've got an economy that's having to climb out of a deep hole with an output gap that's grown substantially. So you actually need financial conditions and particularly credit to be easier than it was pre-COVID in order to encourage, and this is what pal reminded us in testimony uh, this week, to encourage the economy to get back to pre-COVID Uh, where we were pre-COVID, and especially on the unemployment rate, as quickly as possible. He could not have stressed that point uh, more than he did um, in the um, congressional testimony this week.
1: Kevin, I'm going to give it to you for our our final closing comments. Um, When you think about where we are in in this fixed income market, the high-yield market, any closing thoughts on where people should be positioned in fixed income?
3: Yeah, you know, I, I think from the overall perspective, overweight credit to rates uh, shorter duration versus the benchmark, and uh, within credit, you know, do feel there's some opportunities, you know, some still some total return opportunities in the high-yield space. Uh, specifically, I think, you know, if you're looking to play in the high-yield space, doing it within high-yield, traditional high-yield, or what we do, screening for quality in our strategies, you know, looking at negative cash flow and removing those type of issuers out there, um, over bank loans. I, I think that's probably where we should be looking. So overweighting credit, over rates, shorter duration versus the benchmark, and high yield over loans. I think that would be a, a nice summation of, of our overall strategy going forward.
1: Very good. This has been a great conversation. Ellen Zetner, Chief Economist at Morgan Stanley. Kevin Flanagan, Head of Fixed Income Strategy at WisdomTree. Thank you both so much for joining us on the program today.
3: Thank you. Thanks, Jared.
1: I'd like to thank Professor Siegel, Lee Chen, uh, as well as our producer, Patty Hall, sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about Wisdom Tree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show.